right, well, to catch us back up over the past few weeks, um, we've looked at the false teachers and their doctrine and the fruit of that doctrine. We've looked at the gospel and how Christ builds his church by saving us apart from any works that we do in righteousness, but by grace through faith alone, and how he brings us into the family of God through holy baptism. This week we're going to look at, uh, in God's providence, the leadership which God ordains for the church. And our main passage is going to be 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. In the supplemental material, I also bring in Titus 1, 5 through 9, but we're just going to focus on 1 Timothy for today. So please pray with me. Almighty God, the giver of all good gifts, in your divine providence, you have appointed various orders in your church. Give your grace, we humbly pray, to all who are called to any office and ministry for your people. And so fill them with the truth of your doctrine and clothe them with holiness of life, that they may faithfully serve before you to the glory of your great name and for the benefit of your holy church. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. First Timothy 3, 1-13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or bishop, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, which is the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Our outline for the day is going to be the qualifications for ordained ministry, the roles and functions for ordained ministers, and last, not nearly enough time, we will dive into the topic of ordination and gender. So first, the qualifications for ordained ministers. Before we get into the qualifications themselves, I want to make two observations. The first is that I want us to notice how the qualifications are more concerned with character 
than charisma or ability or giftedness. <clears throat> the church has always been in danger of elevating charisma and gifting over character. My friend Mike Cosper has a podcast, some of you may have listened to it recently, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's essentially a long-form reporting of this very issue, of the elevation of charisma and gifting over character. And in the first episode, uh, Mike interviews a missiologist named Ed Stetzer, um, who says... There is a body count of young pastors whose ability rose them to prominence before their character was ready for it. This is not a new problem, but certainly in the age of the internet, the effects of such pastors are multiplied. The second observation that I want us to make is that these qualifications are incredibly ordinary. God does not call super-Christians to be bishops, priests, and deacons. They are not inherently holier than the rest of the church. Rather, God calls, gifts, and equips mundane, ordinary believers from within the family of God. So with those two observations, let's go through some of the qualifications for ordained ministry. Now, I'm not going to go through each one. Uh, That would be unnecessary. Some of them, such as don't be drunkards, I hope are self-explanatory. But I'm going to highlight particular qualifications, and especially those that sort of need maybe a little bit more explanation or uh, or find themselves fitting within some of the themes that we've been talking about so far. And because so many of them are shared between the offices, I'm just going to treat them generally and only mention the office when it's actually pertinent to the qualification itself. The first qualification is, appropriately enough, found in 1 Timothy 3.1. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. Now, One of the things that should be revealed during any discernment process for ministry, at least if it's worth its weight, is why the ordinand desires ordained ministry. Why does the ordinand want to be in the office that they're they're pursuing? (coughs) And that might sound obvious, but consider the false teachers in Ephesus as we'll see a little bit later when we get into roles and functions. By virtue of being teachers in the church, they were, the false teachers were likely to be presbyters of that church. They were the pastors in Ephesus. And St. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the reason they desired the office was because they imagined godliness to be a means of gain. They wanted money. They wanted to get rich off pastoring. You can probably think of some examples of people who are like that today. I will not name names. But like I said, this, that tendency is not new. It's been with us since the beginning. 
And unsurprisingly, uh, not being greedy is one of the qualifications that appears again and again in these lists because of that. That being said, why does St. Paul feel the need to remind Timothy that having a godly desire for the office is a good thing? If you remember from uh, several weeks ago now, one of, the, one of the things that Paul focuses on is the behaviors and the attitudes of the false teachers and how they've presented a lot of problems because they've essentially marred the reputation of the gospel, the reputation of the church, and here we see the reputation of the leadership of the church and their offices. Because of this, and this is a bit of some conjecture, but it it seems likely that because of the disrepute brought by the false teachers, there are probably qualified Christians, faithful Christians, who are being called to these offices who, who are not living out their calling because of what it means to be a leader in the Church of Ephesus in Crete. And what... <coughs> And the disrepute that comes along with it. Now that's conjecture, but it seems in line with what we've seen so far in the pastoral epistles. St. Paul writes to remind the church that ministry is something good and noble. And the church needs faithful leaders to lead her. So aspiration and, and desire for the office. The second qualification we're going to look at. I, th- I think there's six total today that we're looking at. The second qualification is that ministers must be above reproach and blameless. In one sense, this is the overarching qualification. Right? Everything else that we look at in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 5 through 9 is a commentary on what it means to be blameless and above reproach. Now, let's be clear. This does not mean that ministers are going to be or must be sinless as the rest of Scripture testifies to. Right? We have not only Romans 3 that lets us know um, that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we also have John 1, 1 John 1, 8, which tells us that If we say, present tense, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So to be above reproach and and to be blameless in the sense doesn't mean that we expect ministers to be sinless. But at the same time, we see both from the false teachers in the pastoral epistles and uh, contemporary news stories that unqualified ministers ruin people's lives and faith. We must treat the qualifications seriously. Article 26 of the 39 Articles of Religion says, It appertaineth to the discipline of the church that inquiry be made of evil ministers and that they be accused by those who have knowledge of their offenses. And finally, being found guilty by just judgment, be deposed. If we take the article seriously, we have to take the qualifications for ministry seriously. 
but at the same time, we have to be discerning, right? Because by virtue of, of being a minister, it, it open, opens up the door for many opportunities for false accusations. St. Paul in 1 Timothy five nineteen and 20 says this, Never accept any accusation against an elder or presbyter. We can also say bishop here. Except on evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. And so we have to take the qualifications seriously, but we also have to be discerning when accusations come up. The third qualification, and this is something that's also listed in each of the passages, is that a minister must be the husband of one wife, married to one wife. There's a couple different ways. I'm going to go through how the translations put it. But essentially married to one wife. Consider these translations and, and what they... What, what they convey this to mean. The NRSV, married only once. Here it disqualifies people that are divorced, whether the reasoning is biblical or not. Some people understand it to mean that widowers are excluded and disqualified. That's a very tiny amount of people in church history, but it's there. The ESV, the CSB, and the Net Bible say says the husband of one wife. So we have married only once or the husband of one wife. And if we kind of take this on its surface, then it's it's um, it would be dis- disqualifying polygamy, right? Married to one wife, one spouse at a time. The NIV, the NLT, and um, uh, actually in terms of uh, some, some individual scholars, Andreas Kostenberger translates this as faithful to his wife. That's, in a minute, I'll, I'll, I'll say like this is the one that I think is most faithful to the context of scripture as a whole. Um, and I actually make arguments for that in supplemental material that I just I don't have time for today. So if if you're bored um, and you just love language for some reason, uh, it's there. Right? Have at it. Um, but also want to I also want to mention a fourth interpretation that people take of this verse, and that's that uh, Paul is disqualifying by mentioning being married at all that. Uh, St. Paul disqualifies anyone who is single from ordained ministry. And the only response I have to this interpretation is that I would hate to be the person who has to tell Jesus and St. Paul they're disqualified. <laughs> like, I'll leave it at that. So here's, here's what I think um, is, is the most faithful interpretation of this. Ordained ministers are to be faithful to their spouse, whether they are currently married 
or have the potential for being married in the future. And what this verse is doing really is simply standing in the place of all of Holy Scripture's teaching on sexual ethics. So disqualified here, and, uh, and I want you to hear this in the present tense, um, and, and maybe a future tense, but not a past tense. Uh, but disqualified here are those who commit adultery or are unfaithful to their spouse. Those who have been unscripturally divorced, abandoned, or abused their spouses. Those who are in same-sex relationships, and those who engage in premarital sexual activity. The whole breadth of sexual ethics in Holy Scripture. Why? St. Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And the, the fidelity of the minister to their own family is a picture of God's fidelity to the church. But not only that, it shows us something about the character of the minister and his own fidelity to Christ, sound doctrine, and the family of God. Now again, I want you to hear all those in a present tense or a future tense. There, there may be events in the life of someone in their past. And that does not necessarily disqualify them from the ministry. God's grace covers each of those things. And in fact, when we think of the sexual ethics of Scripture, what I want us to understand is that none of those things I just listed off, listed off is any worse than the others. And they can all be covered by the grace and blood of Christ. So faithful to your present or future spouse. The fourth qualification is related to that. Ministers must manage their households well. Now, for a bishop or a priest, St. Paul adds, he must see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. I think that's the NIV. I, um, the ESV also. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. The reason for this is given in the very next verse, 1 Timothy 3.5. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The church is the family of God. Now, as I said earlier, that um, the qualifications are more concerned with character than skill. And I hate to categorize it this way, but um, having obedient children seems more like a skill (laughs) that none of us can master. So one, we have to understand this in light of real life and the fall and the fallenness of human nature. 
But I also don't think that this is necessarily referring to our ability as parents to tame our children as much as it is referring to the character of a parent in leading and forming and ministering to their children. Because notice the emphasis is not on the obedience of the children, but that the parents would be parenting their children in a manner worthy of full respect. How a minister leads, directs, and shepherds their children is a direct reflection of how they will lead, direct, and shepherd God's children. If it's draconian, if it's abusive, then watch out, church. But if it is grace-filled and loving in a way that even when they are disobedient points them to Christ. Well, guess how that minister is going to minister to you? A fifth qualification. This is a fun one. Is that a minister must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace, which is the snare of the devil. And so again, we see this theme pop up that St. Paul is concerned with the reputation of the gospel, the reputation of the church, and here the reputation of the offices of leadership. But does this qualification not seem to contradict scripture itself? In John 15, 18 through 20, we have Jesus saying very plainly that the unbelieving world will hate the people of God. It's kind of hard to have a good reputation when you're hated, right? In Galatians 5.11, Paul teaches us that the gospel is inherently offensive. You're all sinners. How does that, how does that feel? How does that hit, right? Now there is good news that Christ has come and has taken your sin on the cross and you are forgiven and you can live in light of the freedom of that by your faith. But if you're outside the church, guess which part speaks louder? So the gospel is inherently offensive and the unbelieving world will hate us. So how in the world can a minister have a good reputation with those outside the church? My answer, we have to differentiate between the inherent offensiveness of the gospel and scriptural ethics in a fallen world with our potential to be jerks. The Apostle Paul teaches us that we are to speak the truth in love. And we often turn that around to say it is simply loving to speak the truth. But that is not what Paul says. The inference that we should draw from what Paul says is that there is a way to speak the truth in an unloving way. There's a book that you can check out if you're interested that kind of speaks to the subject. Um, If you don't like it, it was uh, recommended to me by Bishop Steve, so you can take it up with the bishop. Um... Stephen McAlpine's How to Be the Bad Guys. How to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. 
I will say this. Um, men and women are not persuaded, although it can be helpful, are not persuaded by logic into the kingdom. There are stumbling blocks that logic can help clear, but ultimately it is the work of the Holy Spirit on turning the affections towards Christ that brings someone to, into the kingdom. And so when we are, are saying hard things, we may have logic and truth on our side. And, but as we're doing so, can, can we pray that the Holy Spirit would make it compelling? It's not on us. Okay. But they are looking for a beauty that the, only the gospel provides. And they will not be hated into seeing the compellingness of the beauty of the gospel. Related to this, the sixth and last qualification includes protecting one's reputation. Again, I, I don't like the language, but it, it fits the theme. Do not be contentious. And really, this is a category which sums up several of the qualifications. Bishops and priests must be temperate, respectable, hospitable, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and 3. Not arrogant or quick-tempered, but hospitable and self-controlled. Titus 1, 7 and 8. Deacons, likewise, must not be double-tongued, not slanderers, but temperate. 1 Timothy 3, 8 and 11. And if you comb through there, you can probably find some more that speak to this idea of contentiousness. And as we saw in week two, contentiousness, argumentativeness, and divisiveness, they're the marks of the false teachers. The false teachers delighted in splintering and fracturing the church a play which they took directly out of Satan's playbook from the beginning. Genesis 3, divide and conquer. In contrast, the ministers of God's church are to be hospitable, gentle, not argumentative or arrogant. This doesn't mean that we don't debate. This doesn't mean that we don't take opposite sides. That doesn't mean that any, everything goes. Anything goes. It's not about, it's more about the manner and the motivation than it is the words we say. Again, the things we say are going to be inherently offensive to people. But in saying inherently offensive things, we are to be hospitable, gentle, not argumentative or arrogant. So then, if these are generally the qualifications for ordained ministers, what are their functions and roles? Bishops and priests, and again, I'm going to be very uh, general here, provide oversight. Bishops are, this is what the word means, um, bishops are under Christ and as successors to the apostles, the chief shepherds and chief missionaries of their diocese. When the bishops are together in the College of Bishops, they exemplify the visual unity of the church. 
Now, the diocesan bishop has oversight over leadership, governments, doctrine, sacraments, and the discipline of the church. Priests or presbyters assist the bishop by carrying out those pastoral duties within the context of an individual parish, like us. It is the priest or or presbyter who stewards sound doctrine through preaching and teaching administering the sacraments, and providing pastoral care. St. Paul, in Acts 20, charges the Ephesian presbyters, out of whom some of them become the false teachers that we see in the pastorals. But he charges them, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. The authority and the pastoral role of presbyters in the local parish is one that is granted to them by the father who sent his own son to shed his blood in order to bring us into the church. We also see a little bit of the role of bishops and presbyters in 1 Timothy 5, 17, um, let the presbyters and bishops who rule well, so there's an authority there, there's a governance there, be considered worthy of double honor. Uh, not enough time to get into that. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Right. So this kind of summarizes uh, the, the overarching functions and roles. Now, um, we also get this from the qualifications because there is one qualification that is more skill-based than not, and that's that bishops and presbyters must be able to teach. Um, It doesn't mean that they're, like, the best teachers, all right? This is not a quality thing necessarily, but to some degree. Um, But... Because they are over the authoritative teaching of the church and protecting sound doctrine, they must be able to teach. This qualification is not given to the deacons. That will become important uh, in our next section. But, Again, general and overarching, the role of the deacons then is to assist the bishop and the presbyters within a, within a local parish um, by uh, meeting the physical and practical needs of the church, so leading ministries that uh, help meet the needs of others. This can include taking um, some of the, the bread and wine to those who are not able to be present with us on a Sunday. Uh, various other things. One of the big things in the New Testament that deacons do is they help um, take care of the widows in the church. Historically, uh, it has been the role of deacons to oversee the catechesis of children and adult converts in the church. Uh, That has lessened over time, but that was one of their big functions in the early church. Um, And I would say along with meeting the practical and physical needs um, within the church, often they can lead ministries of outreach to the city in similar ways. So that's, again, very broad, very general. 
In light of the qualifications, in light of these very broad and general functions and roles, I do want to take a little bit of time to look at this debate on ordination and gender. And if, if you are nerdy enough to keep up with Anglican news, like me, I guess, um, this is kind of a big deal right now with GAFCON. Um, it's always a big deal in the ACNA because of um, how we formed, but um, it, it is certainly in the news again with GAFCON. And unfortunately, I can't give this issue the time that it deserves in class, or at least when it comes at the tail end of a class, a whole class maybe. But, uh, and that is why, again, I point you to the supplemental detail, which is why I made it, <laughs> knowing that things like this would happen. Um, the view of our diocese. And I would argue the view of scripture, which should give me bonus points for next week when I get ordained. <laughs> is that the offices of bishop and priest are restricted to men. But the office of deacon is open to men and women. Again, uh, there's tons of, there's more arguments that I make for this in the supplemental materials. I also point to a couple different resources that I'm not, I'm not going to bring up here. So where, how do we get there? How do we, how do we get there from our particular passage today? Okay, I'll cheat a little bit. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 2.11. 2.11 through verses 15. Um, it, this passage serves to bridge to 1 through 10, imagine that, into what Paul teaches in, in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And there's a lot there. Um, pertinent for the amount of time that we have in class today is verses 12 through 13 so we'll just stick with that Um, Paul says I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first then Eve this is your first time encountering this verse It's, it's hard it's a hard verse. And there's, there's been a lot of battling around it that makes it even more difficult. So let me try and set it in context. The context that we get from 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the worship service, when the church comes together. So it is... It is within the context of the worship service that Paul says this. Now, there's a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 11. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 put together, um, which is in the supplemental stuff. Uh, But we're just going to focus on 1 Corinthians 11. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes it very clear that he expects women to pray and to prophesy in church. In fact, he, he, he talks about the manner in which they are to do that. And so, when Paul says she is to remain quiet, that is not an absolute command. Hear that, first of all. It is not an absolute command for women to be quiet in the church. We'd lose half of our 
worship team if that was the case. How then should we understand this quietness? It must be with respect to the context of the rest of the verses with exercising authoritative teaching. The quietness here is the posture of a learner. It's the one receiving the authoritative teaching of the church. We are not to be quiet when that teaching is not in accordance with apostolic teaching. When the minister goes beyond the bounds of orthodoxy, it is not the time to be quiet. But all things being equal, assuming an orthodox uh, leadership in the church, this is the posture of a learner who receives. So the, the focus or the context of these verses is the authoritative teaching of the church. And then we get from there to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, which we just looked at. At the end, uh, book ending, this is 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, which we've already looked at, that St. Paul says the church is the pillar and the bulwark of truth, the protector of truth, and that is primarily the gospel, but all sound doctrine. So let's ask the question about all that stuff that comes in the middle, what we just looked at today. Who are the first stewards of sound doctrine and who is given authority in the teaching and the discipline of the church? Bishops and priests or presbyters. That authority is given in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and why they must be able to teach. We have a chapter break between 2, 11, and 15, and 3, 1 through 13. But that doesn't mean that St. Paul has changed <coughs> the subject. It is the same subject carried through. Now, <coughs> all of First Timothy and Titus have the false teachers either in the foreground or the background of what Paul is saying. And so we know from today, well, from in general, from this study, in, that the false teachers... Hopefully by now you can see it. By virtue of being false teachers, they were most likely rogue presbyters in the church. St. Paul is exercising his apostolic authority, which then becomes invested in the bishops of the church, to discipline those teachers. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy 1 that it is he himself who excommunicates Hymenaeus and Alexander. I think it's uh, 1 Timothy 1, 18 or 19, somewhere around there. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, then, is the apostles' instructions on what kind of presbyters, what are the character of the presbyters and bishops who should be serving the church underneath his apostolic authority. Since Scripture restricts the authoritative the authoritative teaching of the church to men we hold then that the office of bishop and presbyter are also restricted to men so why does Paul in scripture restrict these offices is it because women are somehow inferior god forbid 
We are all created in the image of God and therefore have equality and worth and value. This is because women can't fulfill these offices well. I know women who can be better pastors and uh, and leaders than most of us. It has nothing to do with their ability. Was it due to St. Paul's patriarchal culture? Does it have something to do with what's going on in Ephesus, that it's only there that Paul's concerned about? The answer to all these things is no, and we know that because of verse 13. Here's St. Paul's reason for restricting these offices. Adam was formed first, then Eve. God's creative timeline isn't accidental. It is purposeful and meaningful. It has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority inferiority but simply that God intended men to be the heads of the family both the marriage family and the family of God in the church and that this complementary nature of the genders is embedded in our creation why? because the relationship is a picture of the incarnate Christ and the church Jesus is head of the church, which is his body. So what then is the purpose of headship? What is headship? There's a lot here, but I would say the the main thrust of the idea of headship and covenantal headship at that is responsibility and accountability. The text goes on to say, as a matter of historical fact, a, a description, not a prescription, that Eve was deceived first. This is not a theological statement on women. Eve was deceived first. And I believe that Eve was targeted specifically first in order to overthrow this relational dynamic that God put into play. Not because she was easier to deceive. But that Satan was sub, uh, subverting the relationship that God uh, created. So Eve was deceived first. But then God addresses Adam. Why? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Adam failed in his role of using the granted authority that he had to help his family flourish in the way that God intended. It's about flourishing, not dominion. It is not about making the decisions, but making sure that your family is flourishing in the ways of Christ. It is about seeking the ultimate good of the other. The authority granted to bishops and priests is related to their responsibility and accountability before God to feed and tend God's sheep. It is a sacrificial rather than a domineering leadership. And we see this in Jesus' substitutionary death and his present intercession for us. The good news of Christ's headship over the church is that it is he who has borne accountability for our sins on the cross as our substitute. He has authoritatively declared us to be clean in the washing of water and the spirit. And he takes responsibility for the building of his church 
and for interceding for each of us. That is headship. What about the diaconate? Well, verses 11 and 12. Women, likewise, must be. The ESV says their wives, meaning the wives of deacons. And I don't, I don't say this often about translations. They miss it. They missed it. It's not their wives. It's women. I argue that specifically in the supplemental. So there you go. Here's the big reason that I, that I take this other than boring grammar stuff that you don't care about. The office of deacon does not have the restricted requirement of authoritative teaching. And so because of this, I affirm a reading of Romans 16.1 that says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Kentria, not just a servant, but a deacon. St. Paul sent Phoebe to Rome, likely entrusting her with the epistle to the Romans itself. That's historical. That's not fact. I, tradition, not necessarily historical, but I, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be, especially with his official commendation. And it would be her, if that's true, then it would be her responsibility to help the Roman church understand the letter. That is a ministry befitting of a deacon. And if that is true, may her tribe increase. So in conclusion, God has ordained a threefold order of servant leadership in the church. And in the New Testament time, it comes to us as apostles, bishops, presbyters, and deacons. With the death of the apostles, the holy orders that we receive today are still threefold with bishops, priests, and deacons. And broadly speaking, the pastoral epistles appoint to three things that help us discern who is called to this ministry. First, there is a good and noble desire for the office. Second, meeting the qualifications for that office. And three, holding to the teaching of the apostles, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The false teachers fail on all three points. They desire the office for prestige and money. Their character and behavior marred the reputation of the church and the gospel and the office itself. And they taught unsound doctrine that was splitting apart the churches and leading people astray. God's providence that brings us to this class this week. Next Saturday, God willing, Jacob and I will stand before God, our bishop, and you, our church family, to be ordained into the sacred order of deacons. Bishop Steve will say, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you know the importance of this ministry and the weight of your responsibility in presenting these persons for ordination. Therefore, if any of you know of any impediment, impediment or crime, because of which we should not proceed, come forward now and make it known. I'm not going to throw Jacob under the bus, but you've seen my life for two years now. You've watched me serve, and you've now heard me teach. If our study of the pastorals teaches us anything, it's that when unqualified ministers lead the church, ruin comes with it. If you have any reason to believe that I don't meet the qualifications we've talked about today, it is your sacred duty to make it known so that the ministry of gospel proclamation would be protected and stewarded well. 
May the church be the pillar and the bulwark of the truth as God calls her to be. And her ministers be the first line of that defense. Amen.